Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave him, sorry, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than all the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke with them, and among all of them, None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Last week we got to work in this book. Um, An amazing book. There's some challenging parts, some strange sort of unexpected parts in the story, and yet I hope as we go through it, we'll not only learn how to live in righteousness, watching Daniel's example and the example of his friends, but we will more importantly learn more of who God is, because ultimately that's what the whole Bible is about, us coming to know the God that we trust and we love so that we can follow him more closely. Now, when we got to work last week, we had that timeline, if you were not visiting or not here last uh, week, uh, we just kind of did a quick timeline of about, oh, thousand years of history, just to sort of set the pieces in place. Because I always find it very interesting when you see Scripture actually set against its historical backdrop of just 
how much more confidence we can have in it that exactly what God says and describes and when he promises and when the prophets come, it all comes true. And so even as we look at this book, sort of roughly around the story of Daniel come about 10 other Old Testament books. So you get the prophet Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Obadiah, and Ezekiel right before the prophet, or right before, yeah, he's a prophet, uh, Daniel, who would describe what the exile will be. They, they describe in precise detail what's about to happen, and they all will point back to a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God says to his people, you're going to follow me, I'm going to take you into the promised land, and if you continue to follow me and are faithful to me, I'm going to bless you. And the the opening part of Daniel 28 is how God will bless them and care for them, but God says, if you turn from me and, and disobey me and seek after idols, there will be consequence of that. And the, the last half, or actually last two-thirds of Daniel 28, is sort of a description of what those consequences are. And if you look in Daniel chapter 9, and I hope you've got your Bible open and will do some flipping with me just a little bit this morning. You'll see in Daniel chapter 9, verse 11, that when Daniel is wrestling through what's going on, he also will point back to Deuteronomy 28, and he says this, All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. You see, Daniel understands exactly what's happening. God is no less faithful in his judgment than he is in his blessing. You get how that works? God said in Deuteronomy 28, here's exactly what I will do. And now we are seeing God faithful to what he said. Sometimes the faithfulness of God, though, isn't it harder when it's those seasons? When God said, if you do that, if you turn from me, there will be consequence. We don't like God being faithful to that side of things so much as we do when we are obedient and walking with him and he's faithful to care for us. But it's no less important. In fact, did you know through the Old Testament that God actually looks on some of those moments, oddly enough, as some of the the highlight moments. When God looks back at the wilderness as he speaks through the prophets, when Israel is out of Egypt but not yet to the promised land, God looked on that time as one of, one of the fondest moments. You know why? It's because during those 40 years, the people of God continued to draw close to him. It would be when prosperity came that they began to drift. And so even through the prophets, through this time of exile, God often would describe what he was accomplishing through the exile in similar terms to what he accomplished during the time in the wilderness, where he would take his people into exile, yes, as a consequence for turning from him, but also with the hope and the promise that through this, they were going to draw near to him again. And so you get prophets that come after Daniel, like Haggai and Zechariah and Joel, who will speak now of God wooing his people back, calling his people back through this time in exile. So that's kind of the sort of the landscape around the book of Daniel. Then you get, of course, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, if you ever want to read more of what's going on at this time in the life of God's people. Ezra and Nehemiah, who will write about what takes place right after the exile, as does Esther, but Esther stays behind in Babylon, uh, along with some of the, the, the Jewish people. So that's kind of the landscape. We looked at that last week. I pointed out that the book kind of divides somewhat neatly into two pieces, chapter 1 to 6, which is sort of the stories, more the biographical stuff, chapter 7 to 12, more of the visions, um, 
And we're going to do our best to kind of walk through both. The thing I didn't really have much time to point out was that the book is also written in two languages. Uh, one of only two books in the Old Testament that's written both in Hebrew and a section of it in Aramaic, which Aramaic is the language of Babylon, the commercial and diplomatic language of Babylon. So much like English today, if you travel the world and you happen to speak English, there's good news for you because most places you're going to go, you're going to encounter the fact that English is the predominant trade language, the pro predominant language of diplomacy. Um, and so even if you go to a language where it's not the main spoken language, you're, you're a leg up. 2,500 years ago, Aramaic was that language. And so different, different scholars have looked at the book of Daniel and said, you know what, it would seem like Daniel is, well, and God working through Daniel, is making sure that chapter 2 to 7 is perfectly clear that no matter what language, what background you had come from, you could open up this book, and while chapter 1 and then 8 through 12 would be a little bit harder to wade through because it's in Hebrew, chapters 2 to 7, perfectly clear. No, no mistake about it. Um, so that's just another piece that we're going to run into. And then last week, I wanted just to point out three things that, um, that I think sustained Daniel. In fact, they were the, the answer to the question that I posed from Psalm 137. How do we sing to the Lord in a strange land? How do we do that? I think Daniel's answer comes in three, three parts. Firstly, that he is keenly aware of the hand of the Lord shaping all this. I put it this way, that despite appearances, God is always in control. And Daniel knew it. I hope you know it. Despite appearances. You see, because sometimes it doesn't look like God's in control. When you go through hard things, it looks actually very much the opposite. And Daniel's story, aside from what we learn through his own pen, would have looked like that. What it would have looked like is one small little nation called Judah that had no right to be able to ever defeat a larger nation gets defeated by Babylon. Entirely predictable, entirely expected. There's no particular surprise about that. And from a human standpoint, we just look and go, well, this is just a matter of the natural cause and events of human history. But you see how Daniel describes it in verse 2. It's not that. The Lord gave. This is God's work. And Daniel never lost sight of the fact that despite appearances, God is always in control. The second thing Daniel never lost sight of is the fact that there is a conflict between two kingdoms. And we're not just talking about Judah and Babylon. In fact, you get the language through here. I tried to point that out last week when Daniel uses the term Shinar. It's just that, that, just that little alerting to the fact that this is bigger than just two nations on a planet. Daniel's aware of a battle between the kingdom of God and this world. And he never loses sight of that through this story. Constantly aware that there is something much bigger at stake going on through his story. The last thing he points to is that the grace of God is present through the whole story. He just constantly sees God as the one who gives and sustains. Um, now, I can't remember. In one service last week, I pointed out a few verses in that first little part there of God in control. Um, in case it was the first service, let me just bring you guys up to speed, because I think it's important for us to see this, this thread that's going to run all through the book. So if, again, if you've got your Bible open, in chapter 4, verse 17, we come across one of the first clear indications of what the, what the book is aiming to accomplish, particularly in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. So this is Daniel here writing and uh, involving kind of one of those visions and dreams. And here's verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, 
the decision of the word of the holy ones to the end, that the living may know. Okay, so there, just stop for a second. So here he's just said, that the living. So that, that's just kind of a, a way that scripture might speak of everyone. So you hear the purpose? This is something that Daniel, God through Daniel wants the living to know. What is it? That the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over the lowliest of men. That's part of the purpose of this book is that the living would come to see that the most high rules, despite appearances, God is in control. If you were to flip over to the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 21, this is now another strange story we'll get to in a couple months' time where Nebuchadnezzar is struck with, with a judgment that we'll unpack. And here's verse 21 the purpose behind it. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was made like that of a beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules over the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. You start to see the point? You start to see what God wants to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar and all those who are living see I'm in control. Chapter 6, verse 26 and 27. Again, just flip one more page. This is now after that story of Nebuchadnezzar is restored. Here, here's what he says. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. I hope you see the point of part of what Daniel wants to communicate to everyone who is alive on this planet. God's in control. It doesn't always look like it, but he's in control. Now, we want to kind of move into this next section where we start to see what's going to take place in the life of Daniel. And one of the things that takes place in the life of Daniel is an incredibly interesting good news thing to me, and that is that he is going to receive... The grace of God funneled through the chief eunuch who is placed over him. And so as I read through this story, it summarizes kind of like this, that, that Daniel and three of his friends are handpicked to come to Babylon and to be raised up within the, the, the royal household to eventually serve Nebuchadnezzar. They will have three things happen. They will receive the food and drink from the king's table. They will receive new names, and they will be educated for three years in the ways of, did you catch the weird term there? The Chaldeans. Notice why it's, isn't it odd? They're in Babylon, and Daniel's still talking about the Chaldeans. Uh, I think there's something in that that's important, actually, to the story. See, the Chaldeans were a particular ethnic tribe within the nation of Babylon. They were the ruling tribe at this point, but they were also the one group out of the whole nation that was absolutely fixated on the idea of divination to be able to communicate with the gods. So if you ever read any sort of old stories or watch any weird movies where they're like, looking at animal livers and watching stars in the sky to figure out what the gods are saying... That's the Chaldeans. They were the, they were the pioneers of that whole thing. And so even as we read in the book of Daniel, I think when you read this little note of it's the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans, what ought to twig in our heads is the fact that it's not just the nation of Babylon in all of its, its chaos and its sin. It's not just Shinar, that term that Daniel uses to describe Babylon, which refers again to the wickedness. It is that unique piece of it, the Chaldeans, who are so opposed to God because they're interested in knowing the minds of their gods through all these other practices of divination, which is, by the way, what Daniel's going to be schooled in for three years. We'll get back to that in a second. So those are the, the three things. We got the food, 
right? We got the education and we got the renaming of these young men. And in the middle of all that, we have the mercy of God poured out through the the mercy and compassion of the chief eunuch, which is an answer to prayer of Solomon. Did you know that? Go read 1 Kings 8 verse 50 sometime. Hundreds of years before this, a king of Israel prayed that one day when the people of God were taken into exile, that God would pour out his mercy upon them by causing their captors to have compassion. We have an answer. Do you ever pray like that? Not, not maybe about, you know, captors. And, but I just mean like, do you ever pray for something that big? I, I will admit, I've been challenged just recently. I find myself often praying for like, tomorrow and next week. Then I go and read the Old Testament and I find this strange thing. I'm, they're praying for their descendants, generations. Solomon's praying for something that wouldn't happen for hundreds of years. Have you ever prayed for your family that way? Not even just for your own kids, but kids after them and after them and the descendants that will come in your family, that you would pray big prayers that God would work in their lives. That's what we see a little bit happening here in this book. Solomon's very prayer being answered right here in this moment. So these young men have everything stripped away, including their names, which is an important point because their names had meaning, and I think that's part of what we're supposed to pick up in the story. In fact, the, the original names of these three young men all have something to do with God. So if you read sort of the name in English, so we're dealing with transliterated names, so let me just, what that means is you take a, a language like Hebrew that doesn't have an English alphabet, and you take the phonetic sounds and you pick an English letter that sounds right. All right, so we end up with the name Daniel, E-L. That's the name of God. Or a name like Hananiah, which is Yahweh, the name of God. And so the meanings of these names, Daniel is God has judged. Hananiah is the Lord is gracious. Mishael is who is like God. You get that L part, that's God. Ah is Yahweh. Azariah, the Lord helps. And you essentially get in these four young men some pretty essential truth about who God is, don't you? Like if all you knew of the Lord is he judges, he's gracious, there's no one like him, and he helps. You'd be in pretty good shape. That'd be a pretty good theology class. It's no surprise then that when these young men are brought into Babylon, one of the first things they want to do is strip that away. Maybe it's important for us to just remind ourselves of some of those key things. You see, I think we're pretty comfortable with God helps, and God is gracious. In our world, anyway, we like those things. And maybe we're okay with trying to drop, God judges. That's what it looks like to me when I look out at the world of, of kind of our day and age when it comes to God, and yet in Scripture, it is so clear. You don't have the God of Scripture if you're going to leave out the fact that he is a God who judges what's wrong, who judges sin. Now, we... we Treat this very lightly. Here's how I've heard people treat this. It's sort of like this. Um, I sin and do something wrong, and then nothing happens. And have you ever heard this expression? It's like, well, God didn't strike me with lightning. I've heard that many times over the years, or something to that effect. In other words, what we expect of the judgment and wrath of God is an instant cause and effect. I sin, nothing happens. You see, God really doesn't care about sin, or he really isn't a God of judgment or wrath because I sinned and nothing happened. There was no ill consequence. That's not what God says of his judgment in scripture. He makes it 
absolutely clear to us in Scripture if we just read it of how his judgment works. Listen to Hosea 13, 12. The guilt of Ephraim is stored up. His sins are kept on record. Romans 2, 5 speaks of the same thing, that sin is stored up. In other words, God says, don't mistake my compassion and mercy for a lack of judgment of sin. That's a... It's a terrible thing to mistake his mercy for indifference. And part of the story of Daniel is learning that whole character of God. Yes, he's gracious. And he's present to help. And there's no one like him. But one day he will judge sin. And it's definitely not worth treating it as a a light, meaningless thing. Now, the the names that these young men get in exchange for their names that used to say some great things about God are now going to say things about these foreign gods. So the Babylonians, it almost appears they've got a great sense of humor. It's like, well, your names used to say things about God. Let's try out some new names. And again, when it comes to the pronunciation, I've had a couple conversations, a couple emails. Uh, I'm glad you're thinking this stuff through, by the way. Um, The pronunciations are probably challenging for the same reason because of this issue of of transliteration from one language into another. So you can, even if you go and Google, it's like how to pronounce such and such, you can probably find three or four variations of how to pronounce these names. I think the more important part is that we understand what the names mean. Uh, So if you're going to a place like Isaiah chapter 46, it would help us out a little bit because it's speaking of the gods of Babylon. And here's what it says. Bel bows down, Nebo bows down stoops. Those are two of the main gods in Babylon, Bel and Nebo. Now, if you look at the names these young men are given, Belshazzar, you hear the god, Abednego. Now, we usually spell it with N-E-G-O at the end, whereas the god is spelled N-E-B-O in English, but it's there. The point is that these men are are being renamed now instead of names that are going to point people to God and reflect his character and who he is. They're renamed after the foreign gods of a foreign nation. Bel, protect the king. Like, that's that's Daniel's name. used to be God judges. Now it's with this false god, protect the king. Hananiah, that used to be the Lord is gracious, is now a name that speaks of the god Aku of the Babylonians. And on and on it goes. The point is they have, their, their identity is being stripped away. They're isolated. They're being pushed into this situation where they are being increasingly pushed into a spot where they're going to compromise. And now their identity itself is being slowly stripped away. And one day, one day if I get to ask Daniel a question... Here's what it's going to be. Thought of this one for a while. Daniel, why did you pick the spot that you chose to make your stand? Because it seems to me that there would have been some other spots that Daniel could have picked and said, you know what? Forget it. I'm not taking that name. Kill me if you want. Or it could have been Daniel saying, you know what? I'm not going to enroll in this three-year program to learn how to divine from your foreign gods. Because that's what the three-year course would have been about. We know that of the Chaldeans. That's what they're studying. They're teaching their young men how to open up an animal, pull its liver, and what to do with it. And for three years, Daniel's forced to go through that program. Why didn't he say at the start, it's like, forget it. <laughs> Kill me if you want, but I won't do it. I don't have an answer. I'm curious what Daniel's answer. What I do know is that he does choose a point, and he says, you know this far and no further. 
comes at the point of their food. When we find out that they are going to be forced to eat the food off the king's table. And I'm just curious what Daniel will say one day. I think it'll be a good answer. And it's actually part of when I read chapter 1, part of what I walk away with in terms of application. Here's what it is. I want to be a man who grows increasingly gracious and careful in my judgment of other people when I watch their actions. Because if I think I, I... Here's what I think. I'll just be completely honest to myself. If we lived 2,500 years ago and I saw the way Daniel lived, I think I would look and say, that's the poster child of compromise. He's now got a Babylonian name, he's enrolled in the king's service, and he's literally studying how to do divination. I think I would have looked and said, Daniel, you're no hero. There certainly shouldn't be a song written about dare to be, dare to be that. But then he draws a line in the sand and says, but I'm not going to go any further. I don't think that's actually that uncommon in Scripture. I think I would have the same question for Joseph, who does some of the same things and is put in some very difficult places. You remember that cup that he hides in the sack? If you know the, the Joseph story, sold in a slave, very, very much similar story to Daniel. And then one day his brothers come. Hands up if you know this. This is how, how, how much detail. All right. So about halfway there, okay. For those who don't, come talk to me afterwards. I'll give you the rest of the story. You know that specifically the cup he hides in his brother's sack is his cup of divination? Have you ever picked up that weird detail? Genesis 44, verse 5. Like, Joseph, what are you doing with a cup of divination? You should just be seeking the Lord. Like, and again, it's, it's one of those situations where I think it's very easy to look at the actions of someone and to reach a judgment without maybe actually finding out what's really going on. I was actually sort of caught a little bit, not caught, but there was a story yesterday that happened totally unrelated to, to faith and all that, but that just reminded me of this. There's a, a person in a sort of our neck of the woods in town who's um, having to sell his house and sell all of his stuff. So he posted everything for sale on Facebook with the headline, Fire Sale, which is like, for people like me who just love a deal, it's like, ooh. So through Linda's Facebook account, I messaged the guy. <laughs> and uh, along with 200 other people, <laughs> I was like, wow. And uh, by the way, I did get a couple of things. Uh, so the story, very happy ending for me. Um, but what was interesting, I went back at the end of the day because I hadn't heard any response from him. So I'm like, oh, well, maybe he just, I, I was actually thinking maybe he hasn't got to Facebook because I'm not much of a Facebook person. Well, I start reading through all the comments. And 200 comments in, it is actually getting ugly. Like the comments people are making of this guy, like it is getting really gross. So then yesterday we finally end up getting to talk to the guy, meet the guy, find out a little bit more of his story. He's working in a town, didn't have Wi-Fi. Someone had actually promised to buy all the stuff, and so he hadn't been selling anything because someone wanted to buy everything. And this poor guy is in one of the most impossible spots. And what's everyone on Facebook doing? Just ripping the guy to shreds. And I'm thinking, you know what? Let's just be really slow when it comes to assuming we know what's actually going on in someone's story even when it comes to faith. Because Daniel will take a stand that I think he fully anticipated would cost him his life. 
If we all look at that Daniel in the lion's den moment as the one, it's like, oh, didn't he know it was going to cost? I think he already crossed that bridge in chapter 1. Now, I'll tell you why I think that. There's a couple theories of what's going on with the food. Because this is the lion. He, he's enrolled in the school. His name's changed. But then if you read in verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the king's wine. It's like, there's the line. And I will go not a step further. Why? Now, two of the leading theories go something like this. The first is that Daniel would have been following Jewish dietary law, so kosher, if you've heard that term. Go back and you read in Leviticus Numbers, you can kind of find out what's involved in that. That's one of the theories. The problem is the theory breaks down a little bit because the, the aspect of drinking wine is never a part of a kosher restriction. So it seems weird that Daniel would point that out. The second theory goes something like this, that Daniel would have been concerned of eating this food and wine because it would have been sacrificed to an idol, which in Babylon for the Chaldeans, I could pretty much guarantee you would have been the case. But what I could also pretty much guarantee you is that he would have also sacrificed to the idols for the vegetables. So it's not, like, it's not like he avoided the problem by saying, I just won't do that. So what is it about the food that comes from the table of the king and the wine that comes from the table of the king that causes so much angst, that causes Daniel to say, there's the line and I won't cross over it. I think the answer comes to us actually in the word that's used in chapter 1 for this food. It's a great word, path bag. There it is. So if you want a great word you picked up in church this morning, Daniel's, the food he won't eat is the path bag, which actually sounds terribly unappetizing anyway, but it's actually not. It's the word that means the king's delicacies. You can actually translate it like the dainties, like the best of the best. Like when you go to an appetizer party and everyone brings their fanciest appetizers and they're all there on the special little trays, like toothpicks and skewers and that. Daniel's like, no, I won't eat that. Now, in chapter 1, that word shows up five times. Clearly, the, it's being emphasized. And then it shows up nowhere else in, chapter, in the whole book of Daniel in chapter, until chapter 11, verse 26. So whatever's going on in chapter 11, verse 26, becomes like our key to unlock what's going on in chapter 1. And what's happened in chapter 11 is actually very illuminating because here's how the word is used in verse 26. It's speaking of the king now and the people who are going to betray him and turn on him. Okay? Plots and that's what's going on. So if I backed up, uh, let me just back up verse 25. The king of the south will wage war with an exceeding great and mighty army, but he shall not stand for plots will be devised against him. Then verse 26, even those who eat his pash bag shall break him. Now, what does that mean? What that means is, even those who are most loyal, even those who have pledged themselves to him, that's what that means, to, to eat with the king, eat his food at his table. It was a, a commitment to saying, we are with you. If you go back and you read Daniel, uh, sorry, David's story, by the way, sorry for last week calling David Daniel and all that stuff. Hopefully, I know you're a super smart church, so you didn't get thrown off by that, right? Uh, but if you go back and read David's story in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 9, I think it is. Anyway, you'll find it. There's a story about David and Melphizhobeth. There's a tongue twister. This young guy who David pledges himself to. You want to know the language used? David says, you can eat at my table 
What does that mean? It means that David is saying, I'm with you. I'll be loyal to you. And, and we see it, it, it reversed a few chapters later well, where Mephibosheth actually says, I eat at the king's table. What are they saying? They're saying we are aligned. We are for one another. That's what, that, that's what that expression means. So when we see it show up in Daniel chapter 11, the fact that even the people who are eating at the king's table will turn on them, that's the surprise. It's like they are the last ones on the planet that should turn on them. Okay, take that, all that understanding, go back to Daniel chapter 1, and what do we have? Daniel saying essentially this. You can change my name, you can force me to go to school, but I will never bend my heart to be loyal to that king. Now you know why I think Daniel was probably ready at this point to give up his life. It's because he just essentially committed high treason. And by the way, his life at this point is worth like nothing. He's a young kid brought from Judah. He hasn't been trained. They haven't invested in him. I'm sure they just looked and said, there's a troublemaker. I mean, everything inside of me says at that point, the king ought to just said, get rid of that kid. He's nothing but trouble because now he's even saying, he won't be loyal to me. Now you see why the chief eunuch's response is the way it is? <laughs> I'm not ready. I'm not going to put my head on the line for this, is essentially what he says. Why should he see your worst condition and worse and do all this so you would endanger my head? You think I'm actually going to stick my neck out on the line for this crazy thing? Now you see why God must have been at work, that there's enough compassion in this eunuch that he actually does it? On this chance that in the next 10 days, Daniel could eat nothing but water, or drink water, I suppose, and eat only vegetables, literally things that are sown. That's the word. In other words, it had to come from a seed, put in the ground, whatever came out of the ground. Daniel said, that's all I'm going to eat. And here's what's going to happen, Daniel says. And 10 days later, you're going to discover I've become fatter than everyone else. Now, I did the keto diet a couple years ago. Um... I stopped it, gone backwards uh, a little bit since then. But I remember the first like, week or two, it was pretty horrific. I was still eating meat and cheese, just stopped sugar. I could barely think. Um, and if someone came to me at, at sort of the 10 days and said, you know what, we're, we're doing this extreme thing, trying to lose weight, and you're going to just eat nothing but water and eat vegetables and you're going to gain weight. It would actually be a terribly depressing thought, because why? We know that's not going to happen. If all you're doing is eating vegetables and drinking water, you're going to shrivel up and die. <laughs> and that's actually the point of the story. Is it not? It's the point of the story. It's a miracle. I, no offense to our vegetarian friends out there. <laughs> um, by the way, it's funny, I actually read one person trying to apply the book of Daniel chapter 1 to really saying, and the point of the story is, the application is we should all be vegetarians. So I'm like, you have not read the story. You can choose to do that, but that's not what Daniel's about. Daniel's about a miracle that takes place in chapter 1. You get that, right? Because no one expects this to happen. This shouldn't happen. And at the end of 10 days, they all stand back and are amazed that Daniel's actually looking healthier and fatter than anyone else there. I'm sure everyone else in that school, whatever it looked like, can you imagine that day, if, if Daniel had any chance of ever being like the popular kid, it was gone that day when the eunuch goes, okay, everyone's going on the same diet. Like, 
got to be kidding. This is the miraculous intervention of God. That's what this is. Daniel has said, I will draw a line and I will not cross it. And God intervenes. Now, please know, Emmanuel, that God doesn't always work like that. Don't you wish it was just like one plus one equals two, and every time I make a stand for faithfulness, God shows up and does a miracle? A few chapters later, the other three young friends will have their own defining moment when they're told to bow down to a statue. And they respond something like that. If they don't, they'll be thrown into a furnace and burnt to death. Their response goes something like this. We don't know whether God is going to intervene or not. He could. What we do know is we're not going to bow down. You go to places like Hebrews chapter 11. It's a great chapter. I love the first half. You know, this, this man, this woman, these people had faith. And look what God did. It's awesome. Somewhere around verse 35 or 36, there's this little word that gets thrown in. Others. All these people stood for God. God came through. Others stood for God. They were burned at the stake. They were killed with a sword. They lived lives of just destitute poverty. Because it's not just a nice, neat formula. But God is always faithful. Daniel bet his life on it. And I am sure if Daniel, if the book ended in chapter 1 and Daniel had been killed at that moment, he would have still said God was faithful. But God comes through in that way for Daniel. And he honors his faithfulness. Can I ask you this? And I asked it last week, and I just want to reemphasize it. Have you drawn your line in the sand somewhere? Have you said, you know what? In, in the pull of this world, in all these different directions, whether it be with finances and money, whether it be with sexuality, whether it be something as simple as our language of how we speak, the kind of words we will use, have you said, you know what? I will go this far, but no farther. Because I guarantee you, if you don't, you will get pulled further and further along. That's just how the world works. You might think in your mind, it's like, oh, I'll never go past that. But if you don't draw that line and just say, I put a line in the ground, that's the one I'm not going to cross. One day you will look back at that saying, I wish I had. And can I encourage you, Emmanuel, to pick those spots and to know them and be intentional enough to covenant before the Lord of just saying, I won't do it. There's where I won't go. Now, some of us have already crossed those lines, and so even as I bring it up, it's a little bit of a painful thing, right? And what we need to do is we need to go back and ask for forgiveness of maybe those we've hurt along the way and say, you know what? I spoke this way, and I ought not to have done that. Would you forgive me? Because now I'm covenanting to draw a line, and I'm not, I'm not going there. I learned that from Daniel. That's what I learned from his example. When I see his righteousness, that's the one thing I see him do, say, no further, I will trust in the faithfulness of God, come what may. And the thing I learn about God through this whole story is how faithful he is. In those opening verses, we get to the end of the story, we find out three years later, <laughs> chapter one actually covers quite a span of time. Three years later, he's brought before the king, the king sort of interviews them all, and, and the conclusion is, Daniel is a whole lot better than anyone else. It actually says, um, the description in my Bible is he was, what, 10 times better? It's actually 10 hands better, which this is actually 
this is actually how this works. It's kind of a funny thing, which is the way of saying five times better. Because if you, I've got two hands, so that's one person. If we lined up ten hands, that would be five people, right? So the king looked, interviewed these guys, and said, you know what? Daniel can do the work of five other men. He's gifted. God accomplished that. You go read it. God gave him that ability. And then we come to verse 21, the end of chapter 1. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Do not throw that verse away. Don't treat that one lightly. Because that's 70 years later. Do you know how many kings have come and gone between then? Do you know kingdoms have come and gone between then? And God in his faithfulness preserves Daniel 70 years later. Because God's faithful. He preserves his people. Many years later, one of our New Testament writers in 1 Peter chapter 2 writes to followers of Jesus, people just like us. Would you listen just to one verse? Listen very carefully to the language he chooses, inspired by God. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What? Exiles. What's Daniel? He's, he's a literal exile. But Peter comes and says, you know what? In an equally true measure, those of us who are following Jesus, we're exiles. We're living in a world that is not ours. It's not our home. It's not where our citizenship lies. So Peter, what, what do you urge us to do? Abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Draw lines. Fight that temptation. Because it's warring against your soul. It's almost like a civil war going on. It's the picture I have when I read that. It's like a civil war. There's, there's like this desire inside me that wants to sin. And Peter says, yeah, but it's waging war actually against your soul. So, so you're in exile. You're never, we're supposed to belong here. You wake up in the morning and just feel like, man, I don't belong. This is uncomfortable. It's like, good good, you were never supposed to belong. Your citizenship is in heaven. So Emmanuel, abstain from those desires. Don't let sin kill your soul because God's going to be faithful. 